Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. And thank you for joining me in this latest episode of the Franco-Dutch War. My name is Zach, and if you've listened to When Diplomacy Fails podcast before, you'll know this. But if not, and if this is your first time listening... Welcome, we're very happy to have you. This is the 22nd episode of the Franco-Dutch War, which is incredible because I still remember being really excited about starting this all those years ago. And now we're, well, we're coming to the end of it, guys. This means, of course, that our episodic schedule, if you want to even call it a schedule, is progressing. So if you have been listening to When Diplomacy Fails podcast in the past, you'll know that the best way to support it is by going to its Patreon page. And if you feel like getting some sweet rewards for yourself, it will be a pretty smart thing to do, all things considered. So I hope you will check out our Patreon page by going to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Or if you just go to the official website of this podcast, because that's how computer literate I am, we have an official website, wdfpodcast.com, for all of your when diplomacy fails history friend needs. If you don't care either way, or if you're just not as obsessed about the podcast as I happen to be, then that's fine. I'm happy that you're listening, and I'm happy to have you on board. You should know, though, that at this very moment, I'm either on my honeymoon or having just gotten married and in the honeymoon stage. So, for that very reason, I'm afraid there won't be any patrons announced at the end of this podcast, as is normally the case. However, if you would like to stick around and wait until the 18th of May, which is when our 5th birthday party launches, that is the date that I'll be announcing pretty much all of the patrons that I missed during the kind of honeymoon period. So don't worry, if you're waiting for your credit, you'll get some. You will certainly get some. Other than that, well, yay, I'm on my honeymoon, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Franco-Dutch War, guys. You deserve it. Thanks, and I'll be talking to you all very soon. Welcome back to The War, episode 22 of the Franco-Dutch War to be precise. We're nearly at the end of our coverage, folks, but before we get there we have a few important events and issues to get through. We last left our story in November 1677, on the eve of an Anglo-Dutch marriage, and with the war apparently going the way of the French. Here we continue our examination of the political and diplomatic implications of the marriage, what Louis XIV thought about it and how certain figures in Britain wished to build upon the marriage, thus making it into an Anglo-Dutch alliance, which, incidentally, incredible as it may sound, would be the end result of the marriage. I will now take you to late 1677. 
Remember, love and war do not agree very well together. Charles II's advice to his nephew, William of Orange, at his marriage ceremony, the 14th of November, 1677. As the pressure upon Charles II grew, so too did Danby's ambition, and simultaneously, so did Parliament's intransigence. Prorogued by Charles II since July 1677, Parliament was not due to return to business until the following April in 1678, but affairs would soon move Charles to call it sooner. Negotiations were heating up with the Dutch. Now not only was a marriage en route, but so too did an alliance with the Dutch seem to be on the cards. Pro-Dutch feeling manifested itself in the support for Danby's policy, which aimed at acquiring a Franco-Dutch peace. This peace had been the supposed aim of Charles since the Treaty of Westminster had been forced upon him in 1674, but at that point, Charles was rightly suspected of not having Dutch interests at heart, and being somewhat pro-French in his bias. Now, though again it was hard to argue that Charles cared all that much for his Dutch nephew, he did seem to care about the intense pressure being brought to bear on his regime to make some kind of strong stand against the French. While Charles had resisted this for some time, by August 1677, he seems to have had a change of heart. Rather than seeing this as Charles' determination to follow a pro-Dutch course, though, instead we should see it as a kind of epiphany taking place within the mind of the Stuart King. Having supported Louis XIV of France fervently and having welcomed many subsidies from him as we know, the underrated diplomatic wiles of Charles II of Great Britain and Ireland were on display again when he came to realise that this pressure from home could be used as political capital abroad. In short, Charles was about to make use of Louis's fears, as he had done a decade before when the Triple Alliance was in development, and by doing so he hoped to wrest concessions from France and recoup the favour he had lost with his people. The policy was also intensely popular in London, and Charles no doubt believed that by appeasing the people, forcing a peace and orchestrating the Dutch alliance, his reign would regain its old vigour amongst that same populace. Of course, such strategies absolutely appalled his cousin, Louis XIV. The reported reaction of Louis XIV of France to the marital arrangements of Orange and Stuart in November 1677 varied. On the one hand, he was said to have been merely disagreeable, saying that, two beggars were well matched in public. While on the other hand, his reaction had a flair for the dramatic when he was supposed to have declared to James, the Duke of York, that, you have given your daughter to my mortal enemy. Mortal enemy, of course, being William of Orange. What was truly significant about Louis's reaction is that he abruptly halted any payment of subsidies to Charles immediately after learning of it, which in turn meant that Charles was no longer obligated to keep Parliament at bay because of its anti-French bias, 
What was more, Louis tasked his advisors with undermining Danby's policy through the age-old tactic of financial application. In other words, out-bribing the MPs that Danby had already bribed. In response, Charles would call Parliament to session in January rather than April, while the French ambassador to London was thoroughly chastised at home for his failure to prevent the marriage treaty coming about. This ambassador, Paul Barillon, had only recently arrived in London in the summer, and had been repeatedly assured by James that no such marriage would take place without consultation with Louis beforehand. As late as the 29th of October, when we know that the deal was by then virtually set in stone, did James assure Barillon that no such deal was underway, and that it certainly would never have been signed until peace had come to Europe. Yet 24 hours later, while peace had not come, a marriage treaty had. This wasn't as simple as an agreement of the British and Dutch to bond their candidates together, though. Barillon was informed that this was a marriage treaty. It compelled British agents to wrest from Louis a declaration of his intention to make peace. And not only that, but within this peace treaty, France was expected to surrender a great deal. Especially if we consider that by late 1677, with the Emperor distracted, the Spanish pretty much useless, and the Dutch beleaguered, the French military position was stronger than it had ever been. The principal terms agreed upon by William of Orange and Charles II were as follows. France was to keep Franche Comte, Air, Saint-Omer and Cambrai. Maastricht was to go to Holland, and the following towns, all of which were already in French hands, were to be returned to Spain. Charleroi, Ath, Oudenard, Tournai, Courtrai, Valenciennes and Condé. Thus the measure had a doubly intense sting for Louis, as not only did it mean the bonding of his ally with his enemy, but it also required him to make what he saw as a disadvantageous peace. Ambassador Bowerlon, for his part, was informed of the marriage and the terms which went with it on the 24th of November 1677, while in the room of Charles's mistress. This was a full 10 days after the marriage had already taken place and been consummated, and it strongly hinted at the fact that Charles was no longer as bothered with keeping the French ambassador as updated as he had once been. Had Charles simply decided to ride the anti-French wave and be done with it? On the surface it certainly appeared so, and Barillon was obviously shocked at the contents of the marriage treaty, and predictably anxious about having to present it to his master. When he attempted to plead with Charles that Louis would never accept the terms, Charles argued that his political position, with the anti-French feeling, and his financial position, that of a broke king, rendered such a policy necessary. Barillon would continue to press the two Stuarts, Charles and James, for a better deal, even going to an emotional James for support. For James, though he had every wish to continue the old French policy, he maintained that he had no control over British affairs, and perhaps Charles had just as little impact amidst Danby's zenith of influence at this point. Thus, appreciating the extent to which Danby had Charles and James over a barrel, though it is debatable, Charles went along with the treaty completely unwillingly as we saw, the message was made clear to Louis that some gain could be had from undermining the architect of the pro-Dutch policy. In other words, from undermining the Earl of Danby himself. On the 29th of November, 1677 though, Ambassador Barillon made it as clear to his sovereign as he dared the point that it would be dangerous for Charles to resist 
indefinitely the desires of the entire nation, which wants nothing so ardently as war against France. This new treaty was a terrible thing, Barillon maintained, but it was not as terrible as what might come out of London if Charles did not give his people some kind of carrot. The marriage treaty was thus the best way to appease his populace without actively dooming France to a war with an Anglo-Dutch coalition, and thus it was inferred that if France did not agree to the peace terms, such a war would be the consequence. Under the pretext of private business did the Englishman tasked with presenting the situation, as it now stood, arrive in Paris on the 28th of November 1677. Almost immediately he ran into problems. Louis just would not accept the terms of the treaty, and he refused to believe at the same time that Charles' subjects had such a sway over their king that they could force him into such a policy line. Yet, Louis was able to read between the lines, appreciating that London's fears of France were sourced from her recent conquests in the Spanish Netherlands, Louis did order that a temporary ceasefire take hold in the region of the Meuse Valley. Aside from this, the triumphant Sun King would go no further. Indeed, if William of Orange could be accused of losing the military campaign in the Franco-Dutch War, he was certainly winning what he saw as the more important political, diplomatic, dynastic campaign. Returning to the Dutch Republic with his new English bride at the end of November 1677, William's plan for driving a wedge between the two cousins was never more apparent. Charles and Louis hadn't been on such bad terms since the French intervention in the Second Anglo-Dutch War a decade earlier. And William wasn't finished. Now that he had planted the seed of a Dutch alliance, Louis' own intransigence had made the option even more appealing, and after being refused what he had come to see as the best solution to his own woes, Charles was determined to dig his own heels in himself. He was not content to let Louis away with it, especially as he now sensed that he had struck a strategic nerve in Paris. What this meant was that Charles doubled down on his efforts to bring about a French agreement to the peace. He sent the English ambassador, Ralph Montagu, back to Paris, and he called Parliament for the 25th of January 1678. Perhaps this latter move was an attempt to demonstrate to Louis just how poisonous the public atmosphere in Britain had become. But if he wanted to prove a point to the French, he also planned to make capital out of the event for his own sake. As he had been so many times before... Charles was on the lookout for further monies from his MPs. To combat these moves, throughout December 1677, Ambassador Barillon continued to work over Charles, and he repeated Louis' offer to effect an armistice in the Meuse Valley, which he hoped would complicate matters and delay Parliament as they debated the idea. When this seemed to fail, as Charles did not accept the idea of an armistice, when the French would be able to creep slowly forward unmolested, and he couldn't rely on Spanish acquiescence in any case, Charles pressed Barillon to gain Louis' approval for a total peace. Again, the possibility was inferred that if Louis did not agree to a peace, by the time Parliament convened in late January, Charles would have no choice but to follow their desired course and declare war on France, as he was so short of funds by this point that his MPs effectively had him over a barrel. Barillon's dispatches home to Paris make it clear that while he never doubted that London would declare war against France if pushed, he did doubt Charles's sincerity, and he didn't believe that the King of Britain was such a hostage to his statesmen as he claimed. Charles was probably exaggerating the full extent of Parliament's control over him, as he had, after all, ignored them for many years beforehand. 
But so long as Barillon believed that Charles was sincere or desperate enough to push the issue, no one could guarantee what Parliament or indeed Charles would do. Even if Barillon had his suspicions, he couldn't be sure that Charles wouldn't go the whole hog in order to bring his countrymen back together. Unable to rely on Charles's position then, Barillon tried again in late December to influence Parliament's great men with some financial application to grease the wheels. When this didn't work, he tried the architect of French miseries, the Earl of Danby. Yet Danby was by this point at the very peak of his powers, and he seemed confident that Parliament was about to announce the support of his policy. Similar efforts to offer Charles yet more money were also quashed. Charles claimed that he could not go back on his word now in the name of a bribe from the French. Parliament would have to be called. Charles also said he was now willing to present to Parliament the armistice offer in those parts of Flanders, but when Barillon pushed the issue and tried to propose an Anglo-French league to enforce this armistice, Charles had to let him down again. Affairs had reached such a point by early 1678 that Charles simply couldn't afford to assemble Parliament and propose such a venture. Louis would have to do better than that. Barillon was thus left to stew in his own juices as December became January, and Parliament looked set to reconvene. The French ambassador got wind of yet more... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Troubling signs. It seemed as though, even without the decision from Parliament, that elements within both states were preparing for a joint war with France. Before we go any further, we should clarify why exactly the normally pro-French Charles now seemed content to threaten and cajole Louis as he now did. All that Charles did at this point, we have to remember, he did because he wanted to bring about peace between the French and Dutch and halt the French advance along the border with the Spanish Netherlands. But why did he want to do this? After being so long content to watch the spectacular French advances there without so much as a peep, the answer has much to do with the change that the Earl of Danby had effected in the British political system. 
you may remember before how the British had become more anti-French, and that through the diffusion of various anti-French pamphlets and other such materials, the British public came to see France as the enemy. This is important because even though these sentiments had bled into the British political system, since that system was initially led by the Earl of Arlington in the early phases of the Franco-Dutch War, these anti-French sentiments didn't find much of a political outlet, and they certainly did not air themselves in the realm of foreign policy. Danby's accession to the helm of foreign affairs, as much as financial affairs though, rapidly changed this trend. In Danby, there was a pro-Dutch statesman determined to increase Charles's powers and improve the security of Protestants at the expense of the Catholic minority. Danby's belief was that Charles's financial shortcomings and political position could be aided best by ending the Franco-Dutch war that continued to evoke such passionate pro-Dutch musings from the British political class. To bring this about, Danby had to make it seem as though he was very much in favour of a war with France, or at least a determined break with Paris. This would put steel into the MPs that also preferred the Dutch option, while those that did not share Danby's sentiments were bribed to think that way, with the result that Danby had created a pro-Dutch party and a state of mind in Parliament which would appear on the surface to be capable of pressuring the king. Yet it was all for show, because what Danby wanted was for Charles to regain his lost powers and position among the people's hearts and minds, and to do this, Charles would have to be seen to make a strong stand against Louis XIV. Yet, Louis would never have accepted this if Charles didn't have a good reason for his 180 in policy. This 180 took the form of the aforementioned lobby of anti-French MPs, whom Charles could innocently point to as a significant pressure upon his freedom to manoeuvre. At the same time, although Danby did desire Charles to regain his popularity, perhaps even with the intentions of effecting a more absolutist form of government down the line, he was also not above using this lobby of MPs to bring actual, genuine pressure to bear on Charles if the king became more stubborn. And at times, although for the most part Danby wanted to bring about a Franco-Dutch peace, he didn't seem above the idea or the eventuality if affairs became desperate enough of actually going to war with France, using the aforementioned pressures and the lobby group he had created. In other words, he'd rather bluff, but if push came to shove, he was willing to go all the way. Danby seemed to know what was best for Charles's image and British foreign policy. The Dutch marriage had been the first step, and with the predictable French reaction both to the marriage and the peace treaty on offer, Danby could then mount further pressure on France, which would give Charles's regime the appearance of strength and unity, even while it was actually buckling under immense political divisions. At the same time, since he had been mostly forced into this position and then partially convinced of its worth, Charles hoped that Louis would give in to the Anglo-Dutch pressures and his own brand of blackmail, rather than test British intentions and force Darby to launch the French war that he was threatening. In short, Charles's aim was the securing of his reign against further public pressure, which he believed would slacken if the French and Dutch were not at war. While Danby's aim was similar but as its end goal, it had a genuine agreement with the Dutch and the further empowerment of Charles as its end goals. While only Danby could be accused of an anti-French state of mind, one which fit in perfectly with the sentiments of the era after he had done his work, Charles was certainly willing to go along with the policy at the expense of his cousin for his own personal gain, just like Louis would have been if the shoe was on the other foot. Perhaps Charles also believed that the Franco-Dutch war had gone on long enough, 
and that his cousin would relent if he faced sufficient pressure, as Louis had apparently done in the face of the Triple Alliance in spring 1668. This time, though, it was not to be. Louis XIV, rather than acceding to the Anglo-Dutch pressures, instructed his marshals to make 1678 one of further conquests, and thus the final year of the Franco-Dutch War contained some incredible gains for France. At the same time, and despite the impressions he had previously given, Louis had, by late 1677, tired of the war. While he did not intend to make such sacrifices as the Anglo-Dutch peace treaty required of him, he was willing to give up some of his gains in return for some others. The point was that Louis believed he could get a better deal, not through diplomacy, but by sending out his armies one last time and taking additional bargaining chips which would then improve the French standing. It is worth considering also that Louis may have taken great satisfaction from the idea that further French successes would greatly inconvenience Charles, since it would after all add further pressure to his regime. If the diplomatic efforts were proved to be failing, and if in fact the French seemed to be excelling, rather than cowed by British threats, then Charles could well be placed in a further bind. What Louis gained from making his cousin squirm is less clear than his obvious intention to make war feed the peace. By so bypassing the British threats, he would make Charles's regime seem even more inconsequential than it already had been during the Franco-Dutch War. The King of France, as Louis XIV wanted to make clear, did not respond well to threats. Louis' strategy for upping the ante in the Spanish Netherlands involved the use of deception to seize Ghent, a strategically important allied fortress sandwiched between the triangle of Bruges to the northwest, Antwerp to the northeast, and Brussels to the southeast. Louis had no intention of keeping such a settlement as Ghent, as it was far in enemy territory and out of bounds for the French administration. Thus, this act, taking place amidst much deception and secrecy on the 1st of March, 1678, is generally seen as an effort of Louis to force the peace, and acquire a better one than Charles was offering. Ghent would normally have been a far more formidable nugget to take, located as it was deep in Flanders, yet so effective had French efforts with deception been by this point, with armies launched at Mons, Ypres and Nemur further to the south, that the Spanish had left only 500 men behind in Ghent to hold it down. These men were little better than a police force, as the Spanish were convinced that Louis would not attempt to take such a distant fortress. That he did shocked the Spanish into immediate countermeasures, while William was also driven from his honeymoon period back into the field. Yet even while the Allies scrambled, Louis's forces marched backwards with a steely confidence to take Ypres by the end of the month, Having done so, Louis then ordered forces down to the Rhine to aid the defence of Alsace for what he predicted would be the scene of an Allied counterattack. These events were at least punctuated by a startling set of warnings on the part of Vauban to Louis XIV, who during the course of seizing Ghent and Ypres repeatedly insisted on exposing himself in the trenches. Exorbitantly dressed, it wouldn't have been difficult for a keen infantryman to pick the king out, and Vauban was adamant that Louis ceased from putting himself in such constant danger. An ironic demand if we consider that Louis repeatedly urged the same of Vauban, with the obvious difference that Vauban was not the king, and the king was of course not a military engineer who needed to be in the line of fire to get his work done. 
The question of why Louis was there a lot is answered by the circumstances of the king's position. If we remember, he was head of the French warrior caste, and he was eager, as ever, to seek his fill of glory. It was one thing for an army during your reign to win a battle. It was quite another for you to lead and expose yourself at said battle. Yet, this quest only went so far, and if we are to believe some scholars, Louis' behaviour at times even unnerved the common soldier, rather than always imbue him with confidence, as we might expect. Though Ypres was eventually seized, it was better defended than Ghent, and Louis' exposure during the course of that siege led one of his infantrymen to pointedly ask, Is this the place for you? Adding to this remark, Vauban came close to chiding the king in the course of his memoirs, where he noted, Whatever care you may take to construct your trenches, there is never any place in them where you are completely safe from all hazards. You are incessantly exposed to the ricochet of the balls, which, most often, only raking the top of the parapet without being stopped, fall into the trenches, killing and maiming. Since there is so little safety in the trenches, might we well consider whether the sovereign, who may be present at the siege of some fortress, should share the risks of his troops? Certainly he cannot expose his sacred person, even when necessary for the good of the state, without causing a whole people to tremble. It is not for me to find fault with the actions of my sovereign, but as my conscience obliges me to speak freely on anything that may serve for the conservation of his person, and especially on subjects relating to the craft I profess, it would be even less proper for me to remain silent. I categorically assert that His Majesty ought never to appear in the trenches. Notwithstanding his engineer's advice, which he would of course ignore for the rest of his life, Louis remained triumphant, and with William furious, Louis' smugness reached dangerous levels. He returned to his palace at Saint-Germain, while Marshal Luxembourg held the line in the Spanish Netherlands, with strict instructions to await further orders. With these acts, Louis anticipated that the previously stubborn Charles would be forced to offer far better peace terms, and perhaps even abandon the idea of pressuring him with the Dutch to make peace. To emphasise how serious he was to bring such a peace about, and perhaps mindful of the possibility that Parliament could force Charles's hand and bring Britain into the war against him, Louis had the peace terms that he desired printed out and sent to the Dutch States General on the 15th of April 1678. Louis promised, as per these terms, not to undertake any more sieges until July, while the Dutch considered the terms, while he began the process of dismantling those fortresses he intended to give up, as per the peace. We will cover this event in the context of the wider peace in the final episode, but what you should bear in mind for now is that, in an effort to secure better terms, William of Orange determined to fight. He marched out with his army to relieve the pressure on Mons, which, in spite of Louis's prior promises, had been under a de facto siege with the French encamped nearby since June. At this, Louis XIV authorised Luxembourg to fight again to repel the Dutch and Spanish, but William would take another month to line up his forces due to a lack of forage. If he could beat the French here, then he could relieve Mons, thereby punctuating the war with an Allied victory and making up for the previously shocking French gains. This battle, taking place over the 14th to the 15th of August 1678, was a bloody affair, and one of the toughest battles of the war, as it was fought under grim circumstances in the hot summer sun, just outside of the Mons suburbs. 
Just before the armies were due to march, and this is where the battle gains an element of controversy among some French historians, a memo came through to William of Orange that peace terms had been agreed to in Nijmegen. William of Orange noted that the memo was unofficial, and thus it is believed that he thought the war was still on, so he resolutely continued his march forwards. On the other side of the field, Marshal Luxembourg had received word that peace was definitely on, but when he saw William march up to face him, he felt honour-bound to respond with force. Thus the Battle of St. Denis, a post-war battle, if you want to be technical about it, was the result of this. It had the effect of forcing the French army away from Mons, and can thus be considered an Allied strategic victory, but because the Peace of Nijmegen had been signed on the 10th of August, and this battle took place nearly five days later, it had no impact on the actual terms of the peace. While he may have found it hard to believe, William of Orange had to accept it nonetheless. As per the terms of the Peace of Nijmegen, peace had come to Europe, and the Franco-Dutch War, that great and terrible struggle which his homeland had been forced to endure, was finally over. Of course, by bringing us to the peace treaty of Nijmegen, we've skipped ahead in our narrative, but now that you better appreciate the military outcomes of 1678, we can roll our coverage back to the start of the year, where again the Anglo-Dutch negotiations continued. It should be added that the peace treaty Louis was able to effect was not the one that the Anglo-Dutch pressure group desired. In other words, they had wanted to wrest far more concessions from Louis, and before Louis went on his tear in spring 1678, such concessions seemed plausible. It took a full two months, following mind-numbing complications and delays between London and The Hague, for both sides to agree to an offensive alliance treaty, which would be used to force peace terms on France. That this only came into effect on the 1st of March 1678, and that Louis by then was investing Ghent, demonstrated as plainly as the Sun King could that he had no intentions of allowing his kingdom to be pressured by the Anglo-Dutch bloc. He would, as he made perfectly clear, make his own way. Even though Britain was now united with the Dutch, and legislatively at least, in terms of forcing the peace on Louis, what really mattered to the Earl of Danby and the pro-Orangist faction in London was the creation of a defensive as well as an offensive alliance. In other words, these individuals did not want merely an Anglo-Dutch agreement that would force the French to make peace along their terms. They also wanted a post-war defensive alliance, which would ensure such peace into the future, upon pain of war with this Anglo-Dutch bloc. This was of course feverishly opposed by the French party in London, led diplomatically by the French ambassador Barillon, and politically by the Duke of Buckingham. Yet Danby opposed them, and had come to view an Anglo-Dutch defensive alliance as the cornerstone of British prosperity and security. It would guarantee Charles's position in Europe, and it would force Louis to consider his next moves very carefully. The potential this agreement had, then, was obvious. However, it first had to be brought about. The negotiation of such an agreement, as we'll see in the next episode, appeared to many observers as an alliance too far. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.